He's a United States Navy veteran, search and rescue swimmer. He became a police officer and undercover cop. Years of violence, trauma took its toll. He's also an author. He's here to talk about his story and his mission to help others. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Calling us from New Hampshire, the great state of New Hampshire, Matt Griffin, retired law enforcement officer, United States Navy veteran, also author of the book Journey to Midnight is joining us. Matt, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Oh man, thanks Jay. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've got, uh, I I would love to say it's a story that's unusual. Uh, that is a story that is not commonplace, but the truth is it is far too common with our law enforcement officers, other first responders, and our military veterans, where they get into combinations of post-traumatic stress, PTS, PTSD, PTSI, I prefer PTSI or PTS over the D part, depression, substance abuse, and becoming suicidal, and that's where you found yourself, didn't you? I sure did. I sure did. March 17th, uh, 2000, um, 2017, uh, just a, just a bad day in, in my life. March 9th, 2017, my police chief, my good friend had committed suicide and I was one of the last people to talk to him. He, uh, March 9th would have been my 17, uh, year wedding anniversary. And I had gotten back, um, you know, still working. Things had gotten a little bit better. My divorce was finalized on January 5th, 2017. And that day I had a prostitution sting going on that day. And I was in the conference room about nine o'clock. We're going through the briefing and somebody knocks on the door and says, Hey, chief wants to see you. I wonder what chief wants. So I go down to his office and knock on the door. I said, Brian, what's up? He said, Griff, come on in and have a seat. I said, okay. So I have a seat and he said, are you okay? And I looked at him and I said, you know, he was indicating my 50, what would have been my 15 year wedding anniversary and, um, you know, the anniversary of it. And I said, I said, Brian, I'm good. And he said, Griff, I want to, I want to ask you right now, if you're not, you're not good, you tell me right now and I'll comp you out for the day and have somebody else leave the operation today. And I said, no, Brian, I'm good. He said, if you're not mentally prepared, you're not physically ready. I said, Brian, I'm good. And Were you good? Up. Were you really good at that point? So I was better. I wasn't good. Yeah. I was better. Where I was at the previous six months was a really low place. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of things that happened. Anybody that goes through a divorce, uh, I was married for 15 years with four boys and, you know, going through that divorce, it was just, I was homeless for a couple of days and, you know, things were, a lot of things were happening really quickly. And so I started to get better once that divorce got finalized. I started to, you know, put my life back together, but I was still dealing with a lot of the demons and the stuff that I had dealt with. Brother, you know, I went through a horrible divorce and it's one of the worst things that ever happened in my life. And I, I, I don't, I don't wish yeah. it upon anybody. I was just going to say the exact same thing. I don't wish it on my worst enemy. I mean, I still have, I still have PTSD from the ding of my phone that I would have to look down and pray that it wasn't an email from an attorney. And, um, you know, so I, I, I did feel a little bit better. I was getting back on into the game. I was a little more focused. And, um, you know, we got done with that conversation. He just looked at me and said, if, if you're not, you know, if you're not mentally prepared, you're not physically ready. I got to applaud no. him for having the courage to do that because 
Yep. I'm a retired sergeant, and one of the things we always did in roll call is a you pass along information, reports, who's wanted, whatever. But you have a chance to inspect your crew, your your squad, and you make sure they're okay. They don't have alcohol in their bath. You look in their eyes, everything else. Right. And when you think someone may not be okay, one of the hardest things to do as a supervisor of any level in law enforcement is to pull that person aside and and be willing to step on their toes and hurt their feelings and ask them, "Are you all right?" Right. And you know what? And that's one of the most important things that you can do. And I just call it a status check. And, you know, and as I've been a public speaker, I status check a lot of people across this country that I work with. And it's just a quick text message, status check. Are you okay? And that's all it is. You know, and Brian checked on me. And unfortunately, I didn't check on him, Jay. And and, uh, I was the last person I talked to him. And two hours later, Brian went home and shot and killed himself. Two hours after asking if you're okay, he he died by suicide. Correct. Dude, that, I don't know how to even respond to that. Yep. It hurt. It hurt. You know, and, and we just, you know, we just went through 9-11 and everybody remembers where they were at during 9-11. And I remember second by second, moment by moment that day, you know, and in, for me, Jay, it was one of those things. It's like, okay, you know, now it's, you know, how do I make peace with this? How do I, how do I move forward from this? He checks on me, but I didn't check on him. And, you know, and as we move forward, I just, you know, through the next 10 days, I just went to a dark place, you know, started thinking about my life and, and, you know, the things that I had. And, you know, I was this golden boy, undercover cop and had all these accolades and everything else. But at the base of it, who was I? Who was Matt Griffin? And that was the biggest thing that I struggled with from, you know, from the time that I was 14 years old. I got a scholarship to play lacrosse at this prestigious private high school and then the Navy and the undercover world. Who was Matt Griffin? And, you know, on March 17th, I, I sat in my Yukon and I wrote my suicide note and, and I was going to, I was going to, I was going to join Brian. Obviously something happened because you're here talking about it. And yeah. I'm not going to say you didn't intend to do it. You didn't fully intend to because I wasn't there and I don't know your mindset, but so many people have chosen a full-time permanent solution to temporary problems. Yeah. Um, and you were confronted with that and you made a decision to check out. I did. And, you know, one of the things that really, you know, started for me that made sense was Brian, Brian wasn't committing suicide. What, I, what, what my depression and what the PTSD in my head started to convince me was that this was a sacrifice. He was sacrificing himself so other people were going to be happy. And that was, that was the lie that my brain was telling me about Brian. And so in turn, I needed to sacrifice myself as well. And so on March 17th, uh, 2017, I sat in my Yukon and, I wrote my suicide note and I'm a big music guy. And so um, I started listening to all the different songs from my life, if that makes sense. Just songs that just reminded me of certain things. You're going to make me start crying right now because I'm thinking of certain songs that that remind me of my teenage years. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, I call it the Journey to Midnight playlist. And and I just started going through all those uh, songs. And I have my gun right next to me and the suicide note right there. And I remember thinking about who's. Whose who's mind, which police officer's mind was I going to be burned into, you know? And uh, I put my phone on Do Not Disturb, you know, and, and the journey to midnight. The, so I was going to commit suicide at midnight at 0000. And just the military in me and, you know, the, the police department in me, like, there's just something that felt right for me about that that time. And uh, at, about, at about 1045, um, my phone rang. And I put, like I said, I put it on Do Not Disturb. But I didn't know at that time in 2017, if you called twice, it would ring through. And so a good friend of mine, um, lieutenant over at the police department where, where you know, I was working and one of my best friends rings through and I picked it up 
And he said, Griff, he said, what are you doing? I said, um, you know, I got something I got to do. He said, why don't, you, why don't you come over and have a beer with me and just hang out? I said, no, Ben. I said, I got, I got something I got to take care of tonight. And he said two things to me, Jay, that, that I talk about all the time. He said two things. And he's not a very emotional type of person. He's not somebody that says things like this a lot. But he said, Griff, I want to tell you two things. Number one, I love you. I love you. You're a great dude. You're a great cop. You're a great father. And number two, Griff, I want to tell you that there's light at the end of the tunnel. As you're going to find that light, I want you to know that I'm I'm here with you. Wow. And it made all the difference in the world for me. And I said, you know what? And I remember saying, you know what? You know what, Ben? I will come over and have a beer with you. And, uh, you know, I, and I remember saying to myself, I said, if tonight's a good day to die, so is tomorrow. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Matt Griffin. Matt is a former law enforcement officer, United States Navy veteran. Uh, he was a search and rescue swimmer. He did undercover police work, and he's also author of the book Journey to Midnight. This is a law enforcement show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Return conversation with Matt Griffin on the Law Enforcement Show. Matt's a very interesting character. He is a former law enforcement officer. He's a United States Navy veteran. He was a search and rescue swimmer. He was an undercover cop. He's also author of the book, Journey to Midnight. And when we're talking about Journey to Midnight, before going to break, you were set on dying by suicide. Your friend who had asked you if you were okay on the day your divorce became final, your, your boss in the police department, two hours later, he died by suicide. And you kind of spiraled out of control. And I know that's a simple way of saying there's a lot of baggage before that, but maybe that was a straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And and you know, you take somebody that you respect and that you you know believe in. And you know, Brian was just one of the strongest, most you know prideful. Just somebody that you would you would run through a brick wall. You know, somebody that you wanted to back you up on every call. Somebody that you wanted to go out with. Somebody that you wanted to be around. You know, when he made that decision, especially after checking on me and asking me if I was okay and me not checking on him, I almost felt, you know, I I get it now. You know, I get it. And that was the depression in my brain, you know, telling me that, you know, you need to make this decision too. Like, you need to be strong and sacrifice yourself for your boys. I got four boys at home, and I was tired of them seeing me fail. In the last six months, you know, prior to Brian's suicide, that's all they'd seen me done was fail. And sitting in my Yukon, I, I made that decision. I made that decision that, that the world would be a better place without me, that my boys, you know, wouldn't get it at first, but they would understand it. And I didn't want them to see me fail anymore. And and I sat there, I can, I can, you know, I can close my eyes and I can put myself right back in that situation. The rainy night in Keene, New Hampshire, I was at a 100 Washington Street sitting in the parking lot where I had this little dump of an apartment. And, you know, my buddy Ben, you know, uh, my phone was on do not disturb. And, Everybody was kind of looking for me, but uh, he, he decided to call twice that night and said, you know, two things that I carry with me and I and I pay forward as much as I can. I said he loves me and that there's light in the tunnel. Was there and something that, beforehand that kind of triggered them to say, hey, something's not right with you? Everybody knew that I was going through a really rough time. Uh, going up to Brian's suicide, everybody knew that, you know, I was going through a rough time with my divorce, with, you know, with, with work and things like that. And so... You know, so everybody was kind of checking in on me, you know, periodic, periodically as we were going through that six months. But once the divorce was finalized and I started to get myself back 
And again, when I went through my divorce, I just kind of put my head down. And, you know, what I said was, I just I want to do my job. And I just focus so much on my work. And I think a lot of that has to do with it as well, like the overinvestment in the profession that we have as law enforcement officers. And I think that tied into it as well. Yeah. You know, and, and knowing that Brian wasn't going to be there anymore to have my back and knowing who was going to supersede him, you know, as the police chief and just knowing that, you know, he, you know, the guy that superseded him at the police department wasn't a narcotics guy. And that was my passion. My passion was to take drugs off the street. And, and I knew that that was going to go away. And, you know, and I'll, be, I'll be clear, you know, after I got through my suicide attempt, things didn't get easier. You know, things got worse after that. But, you know, I made that decision. I said, you know, when Ben asked me to come over and have a beer, I said, you know, today's a good day to die. So is tomorrow. Right. And I kept saying that, Jay, every single day, you know, in a week turned into a month, a month turned into a year. And and eventually I started what I decided that I was going to do every day was just make one good decision for this day, whatever that whatever that meant, whether it was just going to the gym, whether it was I have something I need to get done today, not pushing it off, not procrastinating it, just one good decision per day. And I just kind of strung those good decisions. And uh, the end of 2017, I decided that I didn't want to be you know, a police officer anymore. And I wanted to chase a dream. What was going on in your friend's mind that said, hey, I need to reach out and call this guy? And he, and he got the do not start first, but called again. Yeah, and so I, I interviewed him for the for the book, and we talk about this all the time. He said, um, you know, a couple other officers that we that were close with were calling him and saying, "Hey, did have you seen Griff? Have you heard from Griff? It's Friday, you know, nobody's seen from him, and usually we all kind of get together at a certain place and we'll have a beer or something like that." But nobody had heard from me for a couple of days, and so that was kind of the impetus of him giving me a quick phone call just to status check me. And uh, he said it was about ten o'clock. He had just put his kids down, and and he was thinking about me. He cracked a beer, and he said, oh, "Let me check on Griff. Let me let me see if he's okay." And he said, uh, "I called the first time, and it was just it just went right to voicemail." And he said, "I didn't leave a voicemail, so I wanted to leave a voicemail." And when he called back the second time, it went through, and he said, "I picked up." He said, "It's kind of he was kind of shocked that I picked up." I'm glad he did that, uh, and you let him know when you talked to him. I said thanks yeah. that for for calling back because it again we'll yeah we need to have about it, yeah. we in this line of work in law enforcement in particular because that's where i come from other yeah. first responders i can't speak for them but i know they talk about similarities military veterans they, they many times they reach a spot where they are obviously not okay and we have a choice where you say you call it a, a spot check or status check where we have to be willing to step on their toes and say, you don't look all right. And by the way, right. there was a time when I wasn't all right. And this is what I had to do to get better, to find mm-hmm. a life I wanted. We need to do more of that. And I, I want you again, thank him for doing that. Yeah. One of the things that happens, Matt, is, and I'm just going back to my own experience. I call it the Sunday blues. And I know that is a, a, an understatement. But every now and then on Sundays in particular, when there's nothing going on and I'm not distracted by doing other things, I start thinking and I I go back to remorse, not being around my children. I go back to traumas I went through in police work and the depression can come. I have to get busy Uh, to change my thought process. I have to move a muscle. I have to go do something to get out of it. For many of us, it's you know nonstop adrenaline. It's this is my identity. I'm a good guy because I do this, and there's this and this and this, and I did that. And all of a sudden, when that's gone, and like the marriage crumbles, you got two major heavy hits there. And sometimes yeah. the third one is substance abuse, 
and or problems on a job. And when those three things collide, quite often the result is suicide. Right. Destructive behaviors. They just compound themselves. We had yeah. a, a standing joke. There was there was guys who came on the police department that were married. They were like choir boys. And then three years later, they're living in a basement with a stripper because right. they just totally self-destructed from... Yep. And it sounds contradictory, but the violence, the trauma, the adrenaline rush, eventually they got to find a rush to replace it. Right, right. And that's it. And, you know, and the, and the thing is, is that we, we train our law enforcement officers how to handle situations day in and day out. But what we don't do very well is train our law enforcement officers on the impact that that's going to have on them both mentally and physically. And in turn, we check on you. We'll check on you. So you go through a shooting, right? We're very good in law enforcement to check on them for a week or two. But what we don't do is check on them at the six-month anniversary or the one-year anniversary of that shooting or the one-year anniversary of, you know, a divorce or whatever it is. And so that's what's really got to change is that if we're going to change the culture surrounding the stigma that we put in the law enforcement, it's got to come with the community. It's got to come with the ability, just like you said, not we're stepping on your toes because we love you and we care about you. We want to make sure that you're okay. And we're here for you. It's not just a status check, but it's, it's you know that you can pick up this phone. You can come over to my house at any time, day or night, and we're going to talk. I come from an era where we didn't have critical incidents. We didn't have critical incidents, stress debriefing. We didn't have any stuff. And I believe as a profession, we've gotten much better mm-hmm. at the big stuff, the big critical incidents. Where we tend to fall down is two areas. One is the everyday grind that just wears people down to almost nothing. And the other one you said is six months later, nine months later, a year later, especially when things are starting to go south in their relationships and all the things are important, they begin to change. We're talking with Matt Griffin. He is a former law enforcement officer, United States Navy veteran, and he was a search and rescue swimmer. He was undercover cop. He's also author of the book, Journey to Midnight. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L.E.T. Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Return conversation with Matt Griffin on the Law Enforcement Show, author of the book Journey to Midnight, former law enforcement officer, undercover cop, United States Navy veteran. Uh, He is a search and rescue swimmer and, I said, author of the book Journey to Midnight. During your law enforcement career, what happens quite often Matt, is we encounter lots and lots and lots of stuff. And one of the best analogies I was ever given is when you graduate from the academy, you're given a top-of-the-line, state-of-the-art backpack. And every call for service you go on, you pick up a pebble. It could be as small as a grain of sand. It could be a boulder. It could be as big incidents or small ones. And eventually, there comes a point where that backpack becomes too full. And if you don't find a way to, to unload some of that, it breaks and you are devastated. Were there incidents in your career where you say you can look back and go, this is where I started the downhill slide? Yeah, 100%. So I started off my career down in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And like I said, I was in the military before that. I was a, a SAR swimmer. 
and I was on uh, on on Christmas Eve of 2005, going into 2006. I was in patrol down in what's called the Lake Edwards neighborhood, and as I was driving by a house, I saw a buddy of mine from the Navy. So I pulled over. I'm like, Dave. I'm like, how you doing? He's like, Oh, Griff, I haven't seen you in so long. So I go in. We start. You know, we chopped it up a little bit. We talked, and and he said, Oh, you got to meet Brittany and and Ben Junior. And so I go inside and, and, uh, you know, you know, Ben Jr. comes over to me and, and I start talking to him. He said, Hey, what, what are you doing on, uh, on new, on uh, New Year's Eve? And I said, Oh man, I got to work. I said, I got to work until about seven or eight. He said, well, why don't you come by and get you a plate? I got a whole, a whole bunch of people coming over. They'd love to see you, blah, blah, blah. So cool. Dave sounds good. So on New Year's Eve, I was uh, around the corner from his address, 767 Hampshire Lane. And I was writing down plate and saw surveillance. And I heard the call come over the radio. Code blue, two and a half year old code blue. And I remember saying to myself, Jay, I said, that's a really crappy call for New Year's Eve. And I sat there for about 25, 30, maybe 40 seconds. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. 767 Hampshire Lane was Dave and Brittany's house. And that's Ben Jr. And so I drove my car right up onto the front lawn. I was a first responding officer. And as I got in, Brittany was screaming. And I couldn't make out what she was screaming, but she was screaming about Benny. And as as we got in there, uh, essentially what happened, Jay, was she had taken her six-month-old and in, in, into the bathroom to take a shower and put on Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And so Benny was inside of his room watching Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And just like any two-and-a-half-year-old, you know, he climbs, he, you know, climbs around. So he got onto the windowsill and he grabbed the blind cords and tried to swing from the windowsill onto his dresser windowsill or the window blinds was one of those circular types of blinds and it caught him around the neck. And, uh, and so I brought Benny down and I started doing CPR. And at one point yeah, I had a pulse back and I had a breath. And then I realized that he had taken the last breath into my mouth. And I remember looking up and seeing the scratch marks on the wall from where he was trying to get down. And, uh, oh man, I get, I get emotional talking about it. Even now, and so fire and EMS, they show up and they, they, you know, they push me off and they start continuing on with CPR. And, and as they load Benny into the back of the ambulance, there was these two, these two Mormons on bikes. And so Brittany uh, was out there screaming and they said, can we help? Can we, is there anything we can do? And she said, pray. She said, pray for my firecracker, pray for my firecracker. And I didn't know this until, you know, afterwards, but Benny was born on July 4th. So she called him his firecracker. And so those words, and the scratch marks were etched into my brain for many years and, you know, weeks of, of sleepless nights and tears. And, you know, in law enforcement, we can't tell people that we're struggling like that. No. You know, what happens, what happens in 2005, 2006, if I say, hey, what I saw on the road really affected me. I'm not sleeping and I'm, you know, making these bad decisions. Guess what happens? They take my gun away. They put me on light duty. People look at me like I'm weak. And that's the mentality and the stigma that we've got to change. The other thing, too, is, and by the way, Thank you for telling me that story and sharing it yeah. with us. A uh, horrible thing to go through. Horrible for them. Horrible for you. And I just thank God to this day I never had to go through that. Yeah. By the way, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. So my dad's okay. career Navy, and uh, uh, so I wasn't far from that area. We are not able to tell people that I'm having a difficult time dealing with this, and especially back. And they say mm-hmm. we've gotten better as an industry. But back in the 80s and early 90s, it was very much a suck it up buttercup. You know, 100%. by the way, my book. this yeah. is horrible for everybody. 
and it's horrible for me, it's horrible for you, but you got calls to do and you got a job to do, go do your job. And that's how we handle things. And Correct. and some of the best therapy I got was we would buy a case of beer and go to a parking lot afterwards and talk it over. Uh, that was practice. and that was beneficial, however, for many of us that alcohol became a problem. So Right. Were you were you resorting to substances to try to deal and decompress and find a, a, I hate this phrase a happier place? Yeah. So so Jay, it was it was it was interesting for me. I, I grew up very strict Catholic. Um, you know, I was Irish Catholic growing up in northern New Jersey. Join the club. And, I'm Catholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Irish Catholic, yep. and, and we are the stereotypical family. Yep, and so we went to church every Sunday and everything. And I remember after the incident, after Benny, I decided that I wasn't going to go to church anymore if I didn't believe in God. And I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize that a God would allow this to happen. And so, you know, part of the journey to midnight, but was also my journey from that point was I put a lot of, you know, here I was, I'm a detective, I'm a cop, I investigate things. So let's investigate, let's do what we do on the road, and let's, I'm going to do this for my faith. And so I decided that I was I was going to take a non-biased approach to faith and to, you know, to, to my religion and decide whether or not, you know, there was a God. Because if I could figure out that, you know, that maybe God had a plan for this, got it. But if there wasn't, if this is just, you know, this is just the, the that happens to us, then I wasn't going to go to church anymore. And so that's really what I built into. So I know that, you know, I didn't really get into the alcohol side of it or anything like that, but I went on just this, you know, couple year long journey of reading different books and, and documenting the evidence for, you know, the case for Christ or more than a carpenter, some of the books that I was reading. And I would, I looked at it like I was, I was doing a criminal case and, and building, you know, building the evidence for whether or not, you know, Jesus Christ or faith or whatever uh, was, was real. And so that was kind of my outlet was, was going through that process. I can tell people, if you want proof that God exists, I'm here talking to you. That's and and I know what has happened to me. One of the things that it doesn't have to involve alcohol, doesn't have to involve other substances, but one of the things you hit on, Matt, that I think is very important is sometimes these events shatter everything that we hold near and dear to us, that we hold as, for example, in your case, your faith. Yep. that that became challenged and you're like i don't i don't know and i want to find out and i'm going to come up with answers and part of this is and i know this is a line from a, a goofy movie i can't remember what the movie is mm-hmm. i remember being a young policeman in baltimore and it was a murder scene and i believe it was there were so many matt i lost track i believe it was the domestic violence one and one spouse stabbed and killed the other spouse and I was like 22. And I was really obviously very distraught about it. And this old time cop, he was probably in his 30s. Back then he seemed like ancient. He said to me, don't try to make sense of things that don't make sense at all. Because what will happen is it will challenge your sanity and it will destroy whatever sense of balance you have in your head. Whatever you rely on to feel okay about yourself will disappear. Yep. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, right? You know, and trying trying to make sense of something on this side of, of you know, of heaven is, is a very difficult thing. And Dude, I can't do it today. Are you kidding me? And yeah. I'm, I'm in my 60s, and I, I got no answers. I tell people, <laughs> yeah. listen, I don't know. I, I'm really good at having destroyed my life, and, and I've got a great life now, but 
everything I wanted in my life I had, and guess what? It all went away. The career, the marriage, time with my children, my mental yep. sanity, stability, all those things that we held near and dear to ourselves were gone. And when they were gone, it was just me and my fears. And there's no place to be. This is the Law Enforcement Show. We're talking with Matt Griffin. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a product, actually a line of products, that have changed my life dramatically. Health products. I know many of you like me are skeptical about claims made for these nutritional supplements. However, these Juice Plus products have made a world of difference for me. The simplest, cheapest, least expensive product they have. As a result of taking it, a chewable berry flavored product. I've had full night's sleep every night and zero leg cramps. I know, doesn't seem like a lot, but getting good night's sleep and having a stable mood helps me quite a bit. You can get more details about Juice Plus products at letpops.com. That's letpops.com. And for those of you looking for a great business opportunity, check out letpops.com. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more, there's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com. Back to our conversation with Matt Griffin on the Law Enforcement Show. He's author of the book, Journey to Midnight. He is a former law enforcement officer, former undercover cop. He's a U.S. Navy veteran, search and rescue swimmer. swimmer, And he talked about his journey to midnight, where he pretty much lost everything and became suicidal and began to find a better life afterwards. Matt, before you went to break, you kind of started crossing over that threshold of, this is how bad it got. I was ready to die by suicide. Here's the reasons why. This is what I struggle with. And where we're at now is you've got a really good life now, but there's a yeah. big void between the darkest days and a great life now. And I know you can't describe all of it. What would you say was the process for you to getting where you're at today? It was a minute by minute process, Jay. You know, some, some days it was second by second. Other days it was minute by minute. But I had to build myself into into something. I think sometimes when, just like we were talking a little bit on, on before the last break, when everything is stripped away and you don't have anything and you have nothing left, I mean, I had $1.13 in my checking account and $0.72 cents in my savings account. You know, I slept in my car for a couple of days. When everything's stripped away, you kind of you realize, okay, if everything is gone, what do I want in this world? What do I want to do? And I was passionate about the undercover life. I was passionate about helping people. And so... One of the things that I gravitated towards was public speaking, and I wanted to train other law enforcement officers. And so fentanyl was a big drug for us up in up in New Hampshire in that area. And so I was one of the primary undercovers. I was working with the cartels and, and buying fentanyl. And so I understood it and had some issues when it came to exposure to it. And so I began training other law enforcement officers about fentanyl. And I, I just developed this passion and this motivation around training other cops. And for the you know for the longest time in my life, I wasn't able to tell anybody about my undercover life and the things that I've done inside that and how that affected my marriage and things like that. 
And so the process was when I got into that training and I, and I found that stage and I, and I found the light and, and things like that, it was, it was eye opening for me. And I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so after March uh, 17th, I, I began doing the public speaking on the side the new police chief had taken me out of undercover life, uh, put me back on on midnight patrol, and I and I I accepted it. I said that's fine. I got it. And then, but the process, I was no longer the good old boy. I was walking on eggshells eggshells every day. And come about November of 2017, I was doing these private classes called the Fighting Fentanyl class. And it was a two day class, and I was pushing and working really hard. I was taking classes on how to publicly speak and not say the ums and the rights and everything else. And I was really, really into this. And I set up this class in Hampton, New Hampshire for Monday, Tuesday. I had about 50 police officers from all over the country coming in to hear me speak. And the new police chief comes in on Friday and says, Griff, I'm canceling your leave on Monday. And I said, I said, why? He said, well, you got, you got court on Monday. I said, I don't, I don't have court. I never got a subpoena for it. He said, you got court on Monday. I said, no, I don't, chief. I, I, I don't. And he said, I'm canceling your leave. I said, Chief, I'm not going to be there. I said, I've got 50 cops from all over the country coming in to, to hear me speak on Monday, Tuesday. I put my leave, you know, slip in months ago, everything. And he said, well, I guess we'll deal, deal with that on Wednesday. And I said, I guess we will. I went out to Hampton. I, I spoke on Monday and Tuesday. That was November 5th and 6th. And on November 7th, I came back in and I was waiting for it. And sure enough, the phone call came. And they said, we want to see you down in the Chief's conference room. And I had prayed about this and I, had, and I had thought about it. But again, I was on my, my own, Jay. I had nothing. I had nothing in my bank account. And, you know, I walked down to that conference room and I sat down. And as soon as the chief started, he said, you know, Detective Griffin, I just want to inform you that we're starting the process of an internal. I said, chief, stop. I said, when you, when you asked me to be on patrol and ride the bike, I made more arrests than anybody's made in a nine-month period. When you asked me to go be the SRO at the high school, I changed the culture over there. I wrote the cyberbullying policy. I did it the best I possibly could. When you asked me to do the DUI thing, I made more DUI arrests than anybody in Key New Hampshire history. Same thing with the undercover life. I said, when Brian died, I said, I became, I became something that you guys were not proud of. And I said, to be honest with you, Chief, I said, this isn't any way to treat somebody. And I said, we're seven people down right now at the Keene Police Department, correct? And he said, yep. I said, well, now, Chief, you're eight down. I said, here's my two-week notice. I stood up, and that was the most empowering moment of my life, the scariest, but also the most empowering moment of my life, Jay. I'm sitting there listening to you, and I, I'm imagining. I'm actually sweating Yeah, listening I, to I, that I, conversation. I, I, when I got hurt and retired, I tell people it was the best, worst day of my life. It was, okay, now this limbo I've been in for so long is, is over. The walking on eggshells is over. I didn't ask to be injured. I didn't ask for any of that, but I was devastated that my career was over and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who I was. And I, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, here you've gone through all this stuff and you just tell your chief that I'm done, I'm walking away. That's a real leap of faith and you really didn't know who you were or you didn't have much to bank on. Nope, and that's exactly it. And so November 7th, I put in my two week notice and I decided I was gonna be a professional public speaker. And that's uh, and that's that's what started my journey. Holy cow! I mean, you can imagine telling your girlfriend, "Hey, I'm quitting my <laughs> career as a cop, and I would be a motivational speaker. I'd be like, yeah. open up the doors for the loony bin and and back yeah. up the truck because this guy's lost it." <laughs> yep. And she, and, you know, and, and it was like, "Well, when's your first gig?" Well, I don't really have any yet. <laughs> yeah. What's your first paycheck? I don't know. I'll, I'll figure that out when I get it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's Matt, exactly that is it. A, a tremendous leap of faith. 
Yep. And but you know what? It was a leap of faith because I believed in myself, and I knew that Brian was watching down over you know from above, and, and I felt his power. I felt his, you know what what he wanted me to do, and. Every single day, it was about me. For the first time in my life, it was the decisions that I made were de- decisions that were going to affect me. It should, ne- it should never come to, to that. And I'll, yeah. I'll repeat that again. It should never come to where you felt like you had a force. You're forced into m- resigning. Yep. But you did. And here's the thing: you didn't have a parachute. You didn't have a safety blanket. You didn't have something to say. Okay, I'm gonna fall back on this. I've been a carpenter my whole life, or whatever it might be. You're like, I'm gonna just go out and do something totally different. Dollar thirteen in my checking account, and I got a picture to prove it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Do you ever think yep. back to yourself, like, what was I thinking? Someone needs to institutionalize that guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. And to to rewind a little bit too, um, the uh, a week prior to that, I had my children. Like I said, I got four boys, and we didn't have much, and so it was a lot of ramen noodles and things. And so my older one was about twelve years old. He's, you know, almost seventeen now, and. I remember talking to him because his brothers were asleep and we were watching football or something like that. And I said, buddy, I said, I don't think I want to be a cop anymore. And he said, okay, dad. I said, would that be all right with you? Because, you know, my boys looked at me like a superhero, you know, all the undercover stuff and everything else. And I said, would that be okay with you? And he, he said, dad, I just want you to be happy. And that was it. And that was it. And I said, well, that's, that's, that was the, a 12-year-old kid pushing me over the line to believe in myself. And eventually you decided to write a book called Journey to Midnight. Tell us about that. Uh, so this, is, this has been a huge, huge undertaking in my life. A lot of people uh, you know, think about writing books and, and have great stories and everything else. This has been a huge undertaking. So you know, I, wanted, I wanted people to hear my story. I wanted people to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that there's a roadmap for success when it comes to law enforcement. We have a warrior culture that we, that we believe in and that we subscribe to every single day of our life. But we got to change that to a guardian culture. And we need to get rid of the stigma. And I say this all the time, you know, especially to younger police officers, you're going to see more trauma in one day than the normal person is going to see in a lifetime. And we've got to come up with a roadmap for success for what that looks like. And so the journey to midnight was, was essentially two parts. It's my journey to my suicide and then my journey from that. And, you know, and all the money that I've spent on that book and the time and the tears and the laughs, if it helps one person, Jay, it was all worth it. If somebody out there reads that book and says, you know what, I was thinking about it, but there's light at the end of the tunnel and I'm going to make it through another day, then every ounce of, of it was worth it. And by the way, you can get more information about the book. You can do Google search for Journey to Midnight or just go to his website, journeytomidnight.com. So I imagine you said earlier that you do public speaking and you do public speaking about this as well? Correct. Can people reach out to you and get a hold of you through your website? Yes, absolutely. A lot of times I'll talk to I'll talk to high school kids, to to college kids, to younger police officers, to older police officers, to anybody that wants to listen about what life is and, and how, you know, things are gonna happen to us, but we have a decision that we make and so there's a lot of things that happened in my life that really kind of scripted and prepared me for the decisions that I made later on, which is a lot of what the book goes into from the way I grew up. I grew up, you know, poor in, in uh, New Jersey, and all the things that I thought were so terrible in my life were all preparing me for what I have now. Those horrible and, things turned out to be yeah. blessings. We're talking with Matt Griffin, former law enforcement officer, United States Navy veteran, search and rescue swimmer. His book's called Journey to Midnight. Matt, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Okay, thank you so much for having me, pal. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. 
The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.